Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, so Hebrews 12, uh, we are finishing off that chapter today. Uh, then uh, one chapter left and we are all the way uh, done. I think there's something like 34, 35 messages in, in this so far, uh, and we're close to being finished. So uh, the text for today starts out this way, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the time when his voice shook the earth, uh, but now he has promised yet once more uh, will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that, the king, that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. Once again, read, reading the, the chapter 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. Not, not if you'd like to be or if you care to be or if it is your, personal, uh, your, your personality profile. Therefore, let us be grateful. I, I hope that that would be something that happens for us today. So uh, when thinking about this text, I had a friend when we lived in Iowa who was unlike anybody that I'd ever quite met uh, before. He had almost perfect grades in high school and in college. Uh, academics were pretty easy for him. He never seemed to have a rebellion face. Uh, he never struggled to find who he was in any type of, of party scene, which happened all the time at, at that age that he was in. He was always involved in something academic or something musical. And if he wasn't doing those sorts of things, he was hanging out with his family or his church community. This guy was one of the smartest guys that I ever met and still to this day, one of the best musicians that I've ever heard uh, play. He was also what some would call upon first glance, I don't know if you're supposed to say this word or not, but he was a little bit of a nerd. Uh, he dressed in kind of plain clothes, um, stuff that would make you say, that guy must be pretty smart because he's really not caring too much about what he's wearing right now. Uh, that dude was great smart, uh, but this whole smart, reserved, plain, uh, maybe nerdy thing was actually a brilliant ruse because David was what I call the drunken frat boy's worst nightmare. You see, David had been trained in Taekwondo since he was tiny, uh, and then his parents shifted him into jujitsu before it was the popular thing uh, for every man to try and do, and then he added to that kickboxing. So he had this lethal bag of trickery, and David decided that he would uh, enter into one cage fight to test himself when he was in college. MMA had exploded, and he was like, I just, I just want one. I've been doing this all of my life. I really want to see, will I fold or, or will I whoop somebody's tail? And so a local fight promotion put him up against uh, this classic small-town brawler guy. And, and he was the type that if you imagine a guy with way too much testosterone that thinks that he could beat up anyone, this is the guy that my kind of nerdy friend was put up against to fight. And this guy talked a crazy amount of trash to my friend, uh, and he wouldn't take seriously that David had, had trained uh, for a really long time, and he was actually a great fighter. He refused to acknowledge uh, the forewarning, the warning that people gave, were like, hey, keep talking, this guy's going to hurt you. He, he just refused to hear any of it. So when the, when the fight started, uh, the opponent was still running his mouth, and my quiet, reserved friend turned into a person that I would have ran from. Right, he he put on like he had like the 
uh, the, the Taekwondo pants with no shirt and he pulled off of his shirt and you're like, you've been hiding that the whole time? Like, dude is just ripped and all of a sudden he is like not quiet. He's just like mean and ready to go. I, no shame, I would have just screamed and ran from him. And the beautiful moment happened just a couple minutes into the fight when David ferociously kicked this dude in the ribs so loud that it sounded like a, a motorcycle had, had, had backfired. It sounded like a gun went off and it was a beautiful moment because you saw in this brazen, cocky guy's eyes, oh no, I'm going to die. <laughs> like you could just see it slow down. I have made a huge mistake. David about ripped the guy's arm off just a couple moments later uh, in an arm bar and the fight was over. David never fought again. He just wanted to fight once. He really did, just wanted to see if he could do it and he definitely could do it. And the opponent, I have no idea whatever happened to him afterwards, but I would imagine that he would think twice before messing with a plain looking guy and, and I think, maybe he was too dumb to understand, but I would think that he would maybe think twice about ignoring warnings later, right? And, and that's my kind of segue. This, this text is in the territory of warnings before us. And I don't know if that sets weird on your heart that the Bible is warning you, but there's a statement, how will you escape the warning that comes from above. And we need to set in that for everything it is. There's times when we hear warnings or heavy things in the Bible and we figure out, like, how does it not actually mean that? No, it means exactly that. How will you escape a warning that comes from above? And then the text for today ends with the declaration that God is a consuming fire. How will you escape God is a consuming fire? Those are the bookends of what we're looking at today. The message is clear. Will you hear the warning or will you ignore it? And we'll work to show why this verse is a bit terrifying, but also wrapped inside of this verse is one of the greatest comforts that you will ever find if you believe it to be true. Before we dig into what we find in the text that is beautiful, we'll acknowledge the possible tension. Many people, including myself at times, for probably what I thought were good motives, but, but not very much wisdom, many have said things like, I don't want to fire and brimstone people. Right? I don't want to scare them out of hell because God is love. The idea in this is I don't want to be that guy uh, and I don't want to talk about hell and wrath and justice because those things are archaic and, and those are old school and those traits of God or realities of sin aren't helpful to us anymore. Even maybe that these types of warnings and the ideas of justice and wrath, maybe you've thought before, hey, they kind of give our faith a black eye, so I don't want to really talk about those things. I want to hide those. I want to major on these other things. Yet the Bible majors on the topic of truth and warning together all over the place, and we can't run from that. This text is one of those. The prayer and hope is that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see how these things actually beautifully balance each other out. And if you take one out of the equation, you miss the, the beauty of what the gospel has for us. Uh, we're working. I've heard one amen, and we've got much more to go. So just forewarning you. Uh, I won't recap the theme of the book as much as normal. I'll just remind you that faith for the original audience was hard. And it was so hard that they were weighing the cost of whether it was worth it to stay or not which led us to the text from last week where the author presents kind of two paths, two options, symbolic in the form of two mountains. You can take the path of Mount Sinai or the, the path of Mount Zion, symbolizing the old covenant and the new covenant. The way too fast summary was under the old covenant, Mount Sinai, if you choose that path, well, you have to clean yourself up to get anywhere near to God. 
And even in the somewhat nearness that you could maybe get if you try and clean yourself as much as you can, you still can't get very close. You, you have to stay at a safe distance from God. And God is known in this path or in this mountain. He is known with, with palpable fear of destruction. If I step wrongly or too close or do not maintain what I should, I could die. That, that's what this path is known for. But in the new covenant, the one that Jesus ushered in through his life and his work, this one's completely different. In this one, Christ cleans us. All who put faith in him, he does the work of cleansing. Christ brings you close to God. He gives you access to God. It's no longer stay at a distance or you'll die. It's draw near. Come, I've made a way. Come close to me. The family of God then gets to celebrate the work of Christ that they have an, 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 an eternal, there it is, inheritance in Jesus. The difference of these options is meant to be really clear. But they ultimately ask this question that everyone has to answer. Who do you want to clean you? How do you want to come before the mountain of God? Do you want to come on your own with your own work and your own resume and your own work of cleaning yourself? Or do you want to receive and believe in the perfection of Christ for you? See, one option leaves you in fear, rightly because you're in charge of making sure that you're okay, and the other frees you to celebrate in joy. God has made a way for me. Sinners get to stand free and righteous and clean and loved and adopted forever in the hands of a wonderful father. Which way do you want to go? All the book has led to this question, which mountain will you pick? I want to connect the dots and ask, okay, again, we need to make sure we understand why was this question right here? It's because they're thinking about leaving Jesus They're weighing whether leaving faith in him was a better option. The author is showing the original audience and us that leaving Jesus isn't some magic easy button that you get to to press and it fix all the hard stuff of your life and takes you out of momentary suffering and doesn't have any other side effect on you. Walking away from Christ is also walking away from his provision and his redemption and his cleansing and is paying for your sin. It is walking back to Sinai. To leave Jesus, you leave the benefits of Jesus. You cannot have your cake and eat it too in that form. Then if you leave him, you need to then stand before God on your own merit. I don't know about you. I do not want to stand before the Father on my own. I don't want my resume to be what he sees. I want the sons to be and what I hide behind. What we see is the original audience in Hebrews, they couldn't see the forest through the trees. They couldn't see the, the greater picture, uh, the, the eternal picture that they're doubting in essence. They wanted out of their, tef- their, their temporary suffering in the moment, but they weren't seeing the eternal suffering that would cost them to do so. And that's why the question is presented, which mountain do you want to go to? And then the warning is given, do not refuse him who is speaking. Makes, makes our minds draw back to some of the words of Jesus. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Do not refuse him who is speaking. The author through Hebrews has made it clear all throughout the book, especially in our opening uh, sermon from the book in chapter one, verse three, the aha is God used to speak through prophets and now he speaks through Jesus. Jesus has spoken and he has come and do not refuse what he has given through his new covenant. We'd be mistaken to think that the author is begging people not to leave, though. 
We can tend to think, well, if you present these truths and then you give a warning that maybe you're trying to manipulate people or keep them or, 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 or do something to, to, to make them choose in one way, he's giving the original audience and us the truth about Jesus, though. Out of love, here's what's true about Jesus and what's true about he, what he's done. And out of love, he hopes that we would respond to this in faith. But he's also not groveling. Jesus is not desperate. God is not desperate. And the author is not desperate to keep people. He's simply sharing the truth and asking you to respond to that truth. The intensity of things uh, kind of grows as, as he, again, is just saying, here's the implications of choosing wrongly. In verse 50, or 25, he says, If they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. This was a, a reference in the Old Testament. Israel didn't escape the warnings. They had received from Moses warnings uh, about the covenant of God. Israel actually, uh, they, they had severe punishment because they hardened their heart against God. And if that happened, how much more will we not be able to escape if we refuse the warning that comes from heaven from Christ himself? And we harden our heart against him God made flesh. This warning, it isn't new. We got almost the same warning in chapter 2. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The implication of this is plain. There's no middle ground in the things of God. Everybody wants to destroy truth in a million paths. There's only two. There's only two mountains. That's all. George Guthrie says it rightly this way. The word must be received or rejected. There are those who think, well, I'm just not a faith guy. No, no, no. The word must be received or rejected. For those who reject the word, there exists no escape from God's judgment. At the end, a person either resides as a citizen of God's unshakable kingdom or perishes with the rest of the universe. There seems to be a misunderstanding from some about Jesus. We've maybe tried to overcorrect too hard from things that bothered us when we were young. But the misunderstanding comes because, well, Jesus was kind and he was a patient. And he would associate with the lowly and he would associate with sinners. And because of this, maybe obedience to him is somehow optional or following him is somehow optional. I mean, look how kind and patient he was. And it completely forgets the New Testament words that Paul gave us in 2 Thessalonians. He says, the same Jesus who walked the earth in meekness would come back in vengeance against those who do not know God. And again, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm trying to show you clearly what the word tells us. Jesus, the same meek and mild, will come back as the lion. And he'll be against all who have rejected the gospel that he bled to make true. One way or another, what the word tells us is every knee will bow to Christ, the risen king. They're going to bow in worship and celebration and joy and gratitude of his love and mercy. Or they'll bow in destruction as they are brought low before the true king. If that feels heavy-handed or rubs you the wrong way, it is heavy and it is of utmost seriousness to understand. We're not trying to say it flippantly, but 
I loved how Tim Gray came and preached several weeks ago about the story of God, and he reminded us of something that kind of puts this into perspective, that in creation, in the beginning, the first arc of the entire Bible, all things were perfect. Everything was under the headship of God without sin's destruction, and in restoration, the the final arc of the Bible, or the story of God, that's where we're headed, that's the end, God through Jesus puts everything back together. Under the reign of King Jesus, we live without sin's curse. We live in Mount Zion with God. Again, for those who bristle at the idea of judgment and the wrath of God against sin, they're likely forgetting where we're headed. He has to deal with sin before he can put it all back together. Sin must be dealt with and it must be squashed. Your sin can be dealt with by the Savior or you. Those who reject Christ are rejecting a restored creation. They're going, that's not the place that I'm very interested in. The good news for you is you can have what you want, though. They're rejecting the love of God himself made available, and in the love of God that you reject, you reject the Father himself. I don't, I don't want to push unneeded buttons, but if there are those who think that this is unfair somehow, they can't understand why God would do it that way and why his plan would be this way. What I need to lovingly show you is you're eating the apple in the garden all over again thinking that God's plan is somehow inferior to your own, that you would do better, that you could make a better way, that you could be happier, that you could have more without him. This is the same sin of Adam that started it all. If it wells up in your heart, see the beauty of what he has tried to do. Submit your ideas to the plan of the Father. Again, I know it's heavy. We're going to get to gratitude and celebration, though, if you hold on with me. 26 and 27 are verses that we may have to read a couple times to see what's happening. I I felt like I had to look at them for quite a while, um, but they are straightforward. When the old covenant came down, this is what we saw in the text last week, the the voice of God shook the earth. And, And when he spoke, the people were terrified. Remember, they told Moses, hey, tell him to speak to you because I can't hear from him anymore. If we, I'm going to be undone if I hear his voice again. The voice of God shook and the people were terrified of it. But that shaking wasn't going to be the last shaking. That shaking was just pointing to another shaking that was going to come when God would shake not only the earth, not just the mountain, but the heavens as well. The author of Hebrews knows that we're probably going to struggle with the full meaning of this, so he explains this by saying in this second shaking, he will remove all things that are made and leave behind only what cannot be shaken. This is a prophetic history lesson and a reminder to the people of God that one day the present created realm will be shaken by the Father. More specifically, it will be shaken by the judgment of God himself. And when that day comes, only one thing will remain, the eternal things of God and his kingdom and the sons and daughters who are a part of it. The message is the exact same message that we see in Haggai in the Old Testament. And then we see this message in 1 John in the New Testament. The world is passing away along with all of its desires. All the things that people live for, hold on and zoom back in if the other part was too heavy. All the things that people live for, what we strive for, what we give ourselves to, what we find meaning in outside of Christ, the things that we wage wars over, that we destroy people over, the things that that, that multiply destruction, all of it will be shaken and not stand one day. 
Every earthly kingdom, whether that be every earthly power that we see navigating and trying to move pieces around from Pharaoh to modern ones, every one of them and every little kingdom that a person lives for outside of Christ, all of it, absolutely all of it, will come crashing down. Again, the world is passing away. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31 says it this way, for the present form of this world is passing away. Think about what that text is saying and what the author is telling us. Look around the world. That feeling of it's broken. The chaos, the pain, the insanity that we see everywhere, the violence, the outrage, culture. The insanity of this sexual liberation movement and we see and everything coming with it, the news feeds that highlight our brokenness, all of it will pass away and be shaken and destroyed. For the original audience and for us, if this current cultural climate feels painful and scary, when we see the current of the culture is, is not going where the word is telling us to go, if we're experiencing wrath of a mob or things that threaten us for just following Jesus faithfully, even all the things that we see that make us feel crazy and small in the world, all the things that try and silence you and make you feel overwhelmed, they're going to come crumbling down. No matter how loud and powerful they seem right now, they fall. When? When the shakedown comes. I felt like that'd be a great hardcore song. We can talk about that if you, can, if you know how to do that. I don't. There's a day when all of that will come crashing to the feet of Jesus. Nothing will stand against him. When our righteous king comes, all of it will come down. There's things that make that really good. But if you're not living for the kingdom of God, that's actually probably really disappointing to you. Let's put it this way. Your 401k, your high and lofty career pursuits, and not just yours, mine. Your vacations, the kids' sports, if that's your jam. Your stock portfolio, boys, your CrossFit game. I'll get me too or your golf game, my CrossFit gains, reputation, every single thing that you, you throw yourself into, your house, the addition to your house, the remodel of your house, the money, the way people see you, all of it, all of it falls to the ground in the shakedown. This isn't a statement that means you can't enjoy anything in the earth. That's not what it means. And it doesn't mean you can't pursue anything quote-unquote fun on this side of eternity. It's a simple statement that's saying don't invest your heart and all of your effort and your time and your energy in things that are going to fall. I think the New Testament was pretty good at saying this to us. Do not store up treasure where moth and rust can destroy. What does that mean on a heart level? Do not put the weight of your hope behind things that will be shaken and destroyed. There are times when we can feel some disappointment of a heavy word, like, I don't know if I like that. Friends, this is not a punishment. This is a kindness. Think about how much stress and anxiety and pain you and I put on ourselves when we live for things that aren't ultimate. Think about some of the worst pain that you brought into your life. A good bit of it's probably from chasing temporary things that will ultimately fall. 
And then not only do we bring pain, we fall into countless sins when we chase what will be destroyed in the shakedown. Countless hours of worry and anxiety and thinking of and staying up and difficulty. All for stuff that you're meant to enjoy but not worship and live for. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Verse 28 moves to an actual call to action. All believers, all who follow Jesus, all who are in the family of God, your call is to be grateful. I wonder if that's a surprising call to action for you. We may be more comfortable with hearing repent, read your Bible, pray, tithe, like some kind of quantifiable, like market off sort of thing. But a call to action being gratitude seems a little bit unexpected, does it not? But the author tells us this is the right response to the grace of God and not in an ethereal form, in an actual form that you practice and make yourself do. What the Bible is going to tell us is that gratitude you practice as much as singing a song. You put it on and you do it. Deep wells of gratitude come forth from our hearts. Why? Because we've been given the only thing that won't be destroyed and won't be shaken down. The only thing that won't fade or wear out or get overthrown or become uncool or get taken from you, we've been given the kingdom of God an eternal inheritance. There's nothing better that you could be given. This is a comfort to the heart of the suffering and the persecuted believer. As I thought about this in the office this week, when we suffer for Christ, the world tries to intimidate us by telling us, I'll take your voice if you keep talking. I'll take your message. I'll take your happiness. I'll take your career. I'll take your life if you don't stop. But the reality that they're showing us here is they may yell those things as loud as they want, but they cannot take the unshakable kingdom from you, no matter how loud they are. And ultimately, they fall. They cannot take our inheritance or our adoption or our identity. We get so scared. They're going to take everything, and the Bible goes, they can't take what's most important. Paul knew this. This is why he said, hey, if they kill me, it's cool. I get to be with Jesus. If the powers to be let me live, it's cool. I get to keep sharing Jesus. Why? Come hell or high water, you can't take what I have. What God has given me through Jesus is mine. If that gets deep enough in you where you begin to see the world in light of what is eternal and what is temporary, and see that you've been given what is eternal. Gratitude is the fruit of that. I will not lie to you and tell you that's easy fruit, though. On the flip side, if gratitude is never there, if it's never a posture, we need to like sidebar and, and just tell ourselves, Gratitude is not the posture of a certain personality profile. It's not what outgoing or bubbly or energetic people do. 
It's a posture of the heart available to all. So I think sometimes, we, well, you know, gratitude is their thing and celebration is their thing. No, 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 it's, it's the peoples of God's thing. If gratitude is never there, it is because the Bible says things in the shakable kingdom have taken too much of your heart for gratitude to, to live. They take up too much space in your head and your calendar, and your wallet, and they're consuming all and drowning out the realities of the kingdom of God that Jesus has given you and walked you into. If the kingdom of God doesn't feel beautiful and wonderful like a gift given to you, the Holy Spirit is warning you other things have too much of your heart, brother or sister. Can we talk about that? And it leads to, to a question that's not brilliant. You you can expect it. Am I a grateful person? Am I grateful for what the Lord has done? It's a simple question, but isn't it a searching one? Is my heart experiencing gratitude now or lately, or do I press into things that make me grateful? Or is that not a reality for me? Guys, that'd be a fantastic question if you're in a DNA group or to get together with with a couple other people and go, hey, can we just talk about this? Is is gratefulness a fruit that you have right now? Because it is or isn't one for for me. And I I, want to give you the freedom. Will Will you speak into that with me? Will you seek the Holy Spirit with me over that? Am I grateful? Again, see the wording. Let us be grateful. This is a call to a specific disposition of the heart. Receiving what cannot be shaken calls you to gratitude because your good Father has given you the best thing possible. Notice the continuation of that statement, and thus offer to God acceptable worship. If you're like me, that probably makes you ask, okay, what is acceptable worship? Singing loudly, singing in the right key. They won't let me sing when I play the drums. Is it raising your hands? Is that, is that a, is, is acceptable worship taking communion thoughtfully? Is it dealing with your anger towards another brother or sister before you come to the table? Is it fighting your sin instead of harboring it during the week? Is acceptable worship come through generosity and authenticity and honesty and personal disciplines and engaging in community? The question of how do we give acceptable worship to God probably leads us to some sort of list of things that we need to do and we shouldn't probably do. A a different call than action, an action of lists or rituals that we must nail in order to make God accept the worship that we give instead of throwing it away, going, I don't like that one. While all those things are good, and they absolutely should be pursued, what this verse is telling you is none of those things are what make your worship acceptable to God. If you use any of those things to make yourself clean before God so that he'll accept your worship, you're back at Sinai. I gotta clean myself for him to hear this. I gotta clean myself for him to come near. I've gotta clean myself for him to hear me. That's not the mountain that you've been brought to. Brother, you've been brought to Zion. 
Christ does the cleaning. So then when you sing loudly and lift your hands and come to the table, you do as a free person or not a slave. All over the book of Hebrews, that's what they've been screaming in front of us. Christ is the only way for you to be acceptable before God, and it's the only way that acceptable worship will ever come from you. Your worship is acceptable to God because of Jesus' work, nothing else. You couldn't come before the throne of grace without it. They made a huge deal of that earlier in the book. You could not draw near to the presence of God without it. Nothing you bring outside of faith in Christ can be worshiped to God. All of it is personal righteousness that you try and stir up on your own if it's not through Jesus. So it's almost a trick scenario, acceptable worship. How do you get it? What do you need to do? comes through Christ. Following him, devotion to him, looking to him, relying on him to clean you and not trying to clean yourself. This is a thing that we'll probably see throughout the word when we begin to look at not only is only through Jesus that you have acceptable worship, when you try and clean yourself to worship or come to the table, you, might, you actually make a mockery of Jesus. Going, hey, yours wasn't good enough. I got to make up the other 25% that you didn't do. It brings us back to the heart posture of gratitude, though. Not only have you been given for free, what cannot be shaken or destroyed, you've been given a righteousness that will never fade, and a love that will never quit, an inheritance that won't break down, and the ability to draw near and give acceptable worship. This leads to reverence and awe. If you begin to see the handoffs between last week and this week, celebration and gratitude lead to reverence and awe because you're amazed of what God has done and then you're blown away by who he is for actually doing it. This is what, you're done, what you've done and this is what that means about the type of Abba, the type of father you are. This leads us to the last words of the chapter for our God is a consuming fire. These words were given in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 4. There are times when, when you hear these texts, God is a consuming fire, and, and people associate with it. Well, well, this is what that means to me. You don't get to do that. The author of Hebrews is echoing them before us, the words of Moses. He was warning the tribes about apostasy, about adultery, which is worshiping other things besides their God, about betraying gods through serving false gods. And warns them, do not do that. God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He's jealous for the hearts of his people. The message that the author of Hebrews is sharing now becomes a twofold message. God is a consuming fire in that he will swallow up all things in a good way or a terrifying way. God will consume everything created, everything not covered by Christ. All of those things will be destroyed by his holiness when all is shaken, unless they are under the banner of Christ. This is a clear warning to judgment. Judgment is coming for those who aren't in Jesus. I'm not trying to terrify you. I'm just telling you what it says. But the other side is this. The God who has made a way for redemption 
will capture the hearts of his people and consume them in a good way. His holiness will consume them and transform them as they follow his son and they worship his son. These words serve as a capping off of the warning from the author. God, will consume, God, the consuming fire, will consume everything eventually. He will consume those who've rejected him in judgment through Jesus, or he'll consume those who've received him through his son, Jesus. Those who are in his son and consumed and wrapped up by and welled, by, welled up by the beauty of their father will be marked by deep gratitude. A deep gratitude will be shown in reverence and awe. God will consume their hearts all the way to glory. The warning stands, though, do not refuse him who is speaking. Instead, lean into him. With gratitude, from open eyes of seeing exactly what he has given you. The hope is that we'll see and hear this warning clearly and respond to it. If you're following Jesus, the hope is that gratitude and celebration would come for you. That they wouldn't be like ethereal realities or things that you say but you never experience, but they would actually be yours. That as you come to the table, your heart would begin to well up in joy. My father is amazing and he's done better than anything has ever done for me and look at what he's given me. He has supplied all I need through Christ, my savior, king. And I'm clean and I'm secure. And when the shakedown comes and the judgment of God comes, I, I get to stand before him, not worried that he's going to turn on me because Jesus has done everything that I need. I get to celebrate in gratitude. But here's the part as we begin to try to lead our eyes towards singing at the tail end and even baptism that's coming. The fun part about today is you don't just get to celebrate and feel gratitude to the table. You get to walk out and see the family of God have some of your own baptized. We get to see and celebrate, clap and cheer in gratitude and a party that some amazing work of God has taken place and the people around you want to declare it out loud by getting in the water. What, what your heart needs to see is the same way that God saved me, he has saved them and done a good work in them. And then as we see and celebrate this and, and clap and cheer, we get to understand that we're a part of fighting and pushing back darkness together. Your cheering isn't a manufacturing. It's yelling at the enemy, you're going to lose. Look at what my father has done. In, in chaotic times, there's something really neat about water of baptism. Because though the world screams quiet, you're losing, you're crazy. The water screams, he's winning, look what he's done. Look at what my father has done. In that way, baptism becomes absolutely about the people being baptized. They're the ones giving the proclamation. But, because, but it also becomes for you as well. 
We get to corporately celebrate Christ's work together. These are not grandma pleasers that we take a, a Facebook picture of and go, look what happened. This is a declaration. Christ came and he died for us and makes us alive. And that person has had that happen to them just like it happened to me. Look at what my father has done. The question might be, can your heart celebrate that today? A million things want your heart. Will gratitude come from this or not? As I thought about even that line, and I'm not trying to manipulate you, but I begin to think of a lot of things that make me grateful and make me excited. And then begin to think of the things that should make me grateful and excited that don't. Father, help us. If gratitude is missing today and your heart is heavy, would you ask the Spirit to help you with that? Come tired, come weary, and ask Christ to fill your heart with what he's done. For the reality of your inheritance to to grow, fight back against a cold or distant or heavy heart and see that the Lord will meet you in his mercy. Remember the, the path, come and draw near to me. Look, I've made a way, come and see what I have done. Friends, I pray that as we sing and then as we come to the table and as we go out to the water afterwards, that our hearts would begin to celebrate. I don't, I don't know what you need to do to celebrate. I, I do know at times that I feel like the Lord is drawing celebration out of our hearts and we just ask, can I do that? Yeah, you can. Just celebrate what the Lord has done in gratitude today. We'll start at the table for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Man, you guys can come back up. Here's what we'll do. We'll have three songs. We'll have some moments to kind of pray and and deal with the Lord and ask the Lord, hey, what's going on in my heart? If gratitude's not there, will you you help me see the beauty of what you've done so I can come to the table today in celebration instead of just like, oh, and trying to be serious so you can come to the table and go, look at what you have done, your, your body and your blood for me. We get to kind of wrestle with that. We get to ask the Lord to, to expose the reasons that gratitude isn't there and, and to blossom more gratitude if seeds are starting to sprout. And then we get to go out and see two of our family declare the Lord has done a good work in me. Even the way that the worship set has been kind of laid out at the, at the tail end, what, what I hope that you see is we're, we're just trying to arc towards joy and gratitude. I know that there are heavy things that we dealt with in this text and hard realities of warning And again, it's only when you see the reality of the warning clearly that gratitude can come, though. So we go from the heaviness of warning to the beauty of who he is and what he's done, throwing it back to an old school, better as one day is in his courts, going, you and your presence is better than any of the junk that I will chase. We get to declare that, and we get to take, and we go get to celebrate. Friends, In a world where being angry is sexy, gratitude is a gift. You will have to fight for it, though.
I don't think it's just delivered and dropped in your lap. Wrestle with the Lord today. Show me what you've done. Show me your kindness and your mercy. Grow gratitude in me. If you pray that, I think he'll meet you there. Will you stand with me?